0: Welcome to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. My name is Natalie Adam I'm a nutritionist, a human potential and epigenetic coach, and I created this podcast to bring you the latest ways to take control of your health and longevity. We cover it all, from new technology to ancestral health practices, personalized interventions, and a very special interest of mine, peptides. Enjoy the show. Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is, well, I think all my guests are great. This guy is exceptionally great. His name is Dr. Gus Vickery. He started off in family medicine and he has evolved into the precision medicine guy. He uses all the amazing tools that you can imagine, including peptides. He's now starting to weave bioregulators into his practice. And of course, all of the amazing tools like genetics, labs, blood work, you name it. But what we talk about in this podcast, we cover a lot of ground. We talk about metabolic health. We talk about the markers that you want to keep an eye out for. We talk about body composition. We do touch on genetics, but really we also get into some post-COVID protocols. He himself, along with his family, just came through COVID. So he was very generous in talking a little bit about some of the tools that he's tapped into to help himself and his wife get back to a. And then we talk about peptides for musculoskeletal issues. He has a really amazing story of uh, how his daughter, who suffered a pretty serious tendon injury a year ago, had amazing results uh, with a specific peptide therapy. So all that and so much more in this episode. If you want to find Dr. Vickery, it's drgusvickery.com. And that's Dr. The next thing is he's offered a free ebook to the audience. As he says himself, if you're an advanced biohacker and you're already up on this stuff, this may not be the book for you. But if there's anybody in your life you want to introduce to some of the more foundational concepts of optimizing your health, then this might be a really great way to do it. To get that book, to download it for free, it's ebook.drgusvickery.com dot com. Doctors being spelled D R, not D-O-C-T-O-R. So that's it for my piece. Enjoy the episode. Of course, if you get value from this episode, please make sure that you leave us a review and share it out with your friends, family, anybody that you feel would also get a review. And if you're looking for me, you know you can find me through my website, natnidham.com. Thanks so much for being here. I appreciate you guys. Enjoy the episode. Hey folks, just a little bit of housekeeping before we launch into the episode. Please remember that all of the information provided in these podcasts is for information purposes only. We are never offering treatments, cures, whatever, for any kind of disease or medical condition. Anything you hear about here is going to be intriguing. There's some research around it, but make sure that you check with your medical provider before you go off and do any of this stuff for yourself. All right. Enjoy the episode. And also, if you're looking to connect with me for any reason, with your comments, questions, whatever it may be, you can reach me through my website, which is not nidham.com, or you can find me on Facebook in the Optimizing Superhuman Performance group, or on MeWe in the Biohacking Superhuman Performance group. And of course, you can also follow me on Instagram, which is at Natalie Nidham. Natalie is with an H between the T and the a, the second day. So thank you so much for being here. Appreciate you guys. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gus Vickery. It is such a pleasure to get to talk to you again today.
1: Thank you so much, Natalie. I am excited to talk to you as well.
0: For you guys, if you didn't, if you skip the intro on this one, which hopefully you didn't, but if you did, Dr. Gus and I met for the first time at the Wild Health Summit last October. I had the pleasure of listening to his presentation, which I think was before or after I talked about bioregulators. And then we had an amazing conversation after. (laughs) So, So I think I knew then that I wanted to have you on the podcast. So I'm so excited that you reached out to me recently and we reconnected and this is happening. I think that the first place I really like to start with people, but I, you know, let's, we have so much we want to talk about in this episode that I don't want to spend too, too much time on this, but I do love to give people a little bit of background on my guests and particularly when it comes to medical doctors about how they got from what you're taught med school to where you are today, which are two very different places. So if you'd like to give us a little bit of insight on that, that would be
1: amazing. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. So I uh, I trained in family medicine originally and looked forward to just being a good old community doctor, seeing babies to older people and felt like a very useful skill. I really enjoy people and getting to know people. So I started my own practice post-residency, which is not commonly done anymore. It was just a very small practice and then grew that up over the past 17 years, um, and about seven years into my career, you know, like a lot of clinicians, you're just studying the population of people who are coming to see you and you're recognizing that people really aren't doing well. They're not healthy. They're experiencing either symptoms of poor health or they have diagnosis, chronic conditions, and you're treating them with the tools you've been given, which are medications and maybe some lifestyle advice. And what you see is that they'll temporarily improve and then they get worse, right? And so you start realizing pretty quickly that uh, other than the acute things that doctors can fix, brain and abscess, a laceration you know, admit somebody to the hospital because they're having a stroke or a blood clot, that everybody else, you're really not doing a whole lot for them. I mean, you're helpful, but you're not really solving their problems. You're not that we can solve their problems, but you're not leading them to the true solutions. And at that point in a doctor's career, you've done so much of what you've already been doing. You have some more bandwidth. And so you start having the ability to kind of follow where your curiosity leads you. And the first place that led me was nutrition, of course, and then biochemistry and then genetics and blah, 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 right? Just started finding myself always taking additional courses and learning more about the human system, its design and what's going awry in our modern times. And then in little ways, I was able to apply it in my clinic. So I'd have, you know, still 20 minute encounters because I was doing mm-hmm. the traditional high volume family medicine, seeing thousands of patients every year. But some of them would listen. And they would try some of the things I taught them, even little things just like time restricted feeding or you know, lowering their carbohydrate intake. And we're talking 10, 11 years ago. Right. So these were really novel ideas at that time, uh, adding some omega three supplements. And what you saw was that people would improve. They would feel better. And, you know, there's one assumption that the traditional healthcare system makes. Uh, and I work in the traditional healthcare system about individuals that are chronically sick. And one of those assumptions is that they're not necessarily interested in getting well. I'm not saying everybody's making that assumption, but the assumption is that they're just okay living with these chronic diseases and they're just coming in looking for more medication. And what I learned over time is that was not true. I mean, there are some people that are attached to the sick role and they're just going to play that role for whatever reason. But most of the people I was seeing, they wanted to get well. They wanted to feel better. They didn't want another medication. They didn't want a pharmaceutical that could just take away the headaches. They wanted to figure out why they were having headaches. And if you gave them the right information, and that was the hard part was what's the right information, they would take action and they would get better and they would heal. And then over time, people asked me for more, more time, more data. And so I would do that. And then it just kind of naturally evolved to a point where now I end up spending all my time with a ton of data. And also a lot of time with every person that I work with. And so I do this deeper level of medicine for the patients I'm working with. Some are very healthy, but want to be as healthy as possible. And some are pretty sick and need to restore health. But the good thing was that I brought young colleagues joined my clinic that are a lot like where I was 15 years ago. And so we still were able to serve about 5,000 people in our community with an independent family medicine practice, take their insurance and really help them have a good experience and maybe get more. And then the individuals who really want to dig in and go deep and spend a lot of time will work with me in my program that's within the practice.
0: That's amazing. I love it. It's, I mean, it's a natural evolution, right? And But it's the natural evolution that happens for a medical doctor who actually takes that moment to say, wait a minute, what I'm doing is not working. There's a better way. And no, and, and I think that, you know, I don't know, I wouldn't call it lack of interest on the part of a lot of other conventional docs, but, you know, either they're too overwhelmed or they're too swamped or, you know, I'm sure there's a variety of reasons for a variety of people why this doesn't happen. But it's always, you know, I think it's encouraging to see how an increasing number of physicians are taking that initiative now and saying, okay, wait, I, I graduated med school, but I'm not done. I'm not done learning. And there's more to this than meets the eye. So anyway, so we're all super lucky that you're doing what you're doing. So you talk about two different populations of two distinct populations of patients that you serve. And I'm sure there's nuance and a lot more in there, but you basically have your patients who are, sick dealing with issues. And what you're doing is really trying to get them back to some degree of stability and, or homeostasis, we might call it. And then you have your patients who are not sick, but they want better. And so this is where we get into that discussion around longevity, high performance. And so, you know, two of the the big things we were going to talk about today, which I think are big topics that, we're all still continually learning about is metabolic health and body composition. And maybe we could talk a little bit about how, but we can start with metabolic health and how that fits into this conversation around longevity and, uh, and high performance, because I mean, we both know if you don't have that, that fundamental balance, those balances in your system in place getting to the next level is just not really going to happen. And I think what we see a lot of is people hear about these really cool things out there, like the biohacking, the supplements, the technology, the peptides, whatever it is. And they want to just jump right in there. Right. And sometimes, you know, even as a coach, I find myself putting on the brakes and saying, well, hold on a second what's what's the landscape you're going to be introducing these things into so maybe you just if you want if you wouldn't mind like just talking a little bit about these issues around metabolic health because there were so many interesting points you hit on in the podcast we did before the podcast (laughs) (laughs) i kept thinking i should turn on record
1: (laughs) yeah well you know one of the obvious reasons why metabolic health became so interesting to me was that throughout the thrust of my career the vast majority of people who were coming to see me frequently had type two diabetes, insulin resistance, hyperuricemia, lipidemia, vascular disease. And those things all collect around the same, under the same, same umbrella metabolic health issues. And people are like, well, what is metabolic health and the, you know, there's not like a precise definition, but from my perspective, it's it's fundamental to all health, including longevity. It's your body's ability to take in everything needed to create energy, distribute it properly, right? Actually then create energy from it and dispose of the byproduct of that. Like if you can't do that, your cells can't function well, your tissues can't function well, you can't function well. And a lot of folks are shocked that when they just reverse like the beginnings of insulin resistance, so like you do a full lab assessment, they don't really have blood sugar issues yet, but they do have clear markers of insulin resistance. And you begin to clean that up through lifestyle change, et cetera, at how much their energy improves just by doing that, right? Not even doing any of the next level stuff. All they did was simply improve metabolic health. And now their brain's functioning better. Their workout performance is better. They're naturally losing weight without thinking so much about weight. And and if you're not attending to this issue, one, in our time, going with the flow in our society, it means you will have bad but, you know, poor metabolic health. And you're likely to have that by the time you're a college student. We already know studies when you do say glucose and insulin tolerance tests on individuals where it's much better to pick it up early. That like 80% of sedentary college students already have insulin resistance, at least wow. at the level of the muscle cell. Maybe not yet the liver, maybe not the fat cells, but the muscle cells are already insulin resistant. And they can reverse that with just exercise at that stage, right? All they got to do is go exercise some and they can already reverse it. Then you get to 30 and you got to do a little more and 40 and a little more. And a lot of folks also don't realize that, you know, the development of uh, glycemic variability issues and insulin resistance is not just a product of poor lifestyle. It's a product of aging. As we age, resting blood glucose goes up. It just happens. Our body is not as uh, effective at managing that. And you and I both know through our genetic training that you also can have a lot of genetic polymorphisms that even increase that risk even more. Mm -hmm. And I have some very healthy, uh, still competitive athletic individuals that are in their 70s, optimal body compositions. And they're doing all the things that they're supposed to do and recovering and resting properly. And yet they have markers that there's some insulin resistance in their system. It's probably genetics and age. And we have to be very proactive about that.
0: And so how do you address that? So in some, you know, because on paper and that's, you know, first of all, your comment on university students, I think is really interesting because university students, because much of the time they can maintain that outward sign that everything is fine, which is that their body composition is basically okay. Nobody even thinks about it, right? Nobody thinks to check their blood sugar disposal management system, (laughs) like they just And I actually think that's such an interesting point because not only to your point, are they setting up down the road, but could we say that it might even be in some small way impacting their ability to function cognitively at their best, right? And so how are they getting to that, to those initial stages of insulin resistance? Could it be the crappy diet, the poor sleep, the drinking, (laughs) (laughs) right? And plus- You're talking about the sedentary student. So you're talking, you're not talking about the varsity level student here. You're talking about the one that's the more academic version.
1: Yeah, I'm talking about folks who go to college, but are not overweight, but just don't exercise regularly. They're not physically active.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So if anybody's listening to this and you fall into that category or you have someone in your life in that category, I think that's a really great And I think it's something that we spend zero time talking about. And these are the people that, you know, they hit their 30s. Now they've got the job, they've got the kid or the kids on the way. And it just starts to pile on um, in a big way.
1: Yeah, the average 40-year-old that SC has, and they don't have no idea, but when we put them on our deck, said so the visceral fat, the composition that they have, they're, they're really shocked by it. Their body fat percentages are always higher than they would have estimated. Why? Just like you said about university students, they all kind of, most of them aren't manifesting a phenotype yet where they look yeah. unhealthy, right? But they don't know what's going on biochemically. Well, the average 40-year-old, all of their Friends that they're hanging out with also have the 20 or 30 pounds of visceral real fat. So they all look, they don't look obese, right? They look yeah. like the normal person and they have no idea. And when you do the deep dive on their data and you look at their fasting insulin, their lipids, their inflammation, they're just shocked about what's going on in their system.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And so, but the other one, the other thing that you said that I thought was really interesting was the 70 year old. And this one's tougher. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it's easier with the university student, 20 year old, 30 year old, 40 year old to say, okay, well, let's introduce you to the concept of eating better, sleeping more, drinking a little less, moving a bit more. Like we're still at that point where assuming they didn't do damage to themselves by crash diets or all the crazy things that people do, this is still a reasonably easy fix for the most part. But with your 70 year old, who's very physically active, who's very fit, who's a competitive athlete, and yet who's showing those signs of insulin resistance at this point, you're not going to tell them to exercise more. You're not going to cut their carbs anymore because they're already eating reasonably well. So what's the, what's the solution for that guy? Like what's the, what's the, what are the levers you're going to have access to in this situation with that, that kind of insulin resistance building in the background?
1: Yeah. And so to your point already, so we we know that they're getting proper sleep. We're tracking that, right? Because if they're not recovering, if if they're athletic and overtraining, because that's just a a habit, then that's going to actually impact, you know, these systems. So we're just going to pretend that this person is recovering properly. They're sleeping well. They've got a very healthy diet. They're using the proper principles of time-restricted feeding. Their circadian rhythm's working well. And yet we're checking their markers and we can clearly see that they're developing, say, higher glycemic variability by we can get their a1c and blood sugar data now one thing to always look for of course is are they having some beta cell attrition and function right because a lot of times it's going to be both at those ages it's not just that they're insulin resistant it's also that their beta cell production uh, isn't what it used to be and they're not able to handle a higher glucose load at meals so you were right that we're probably not going to necessarily cut carbs because these people are probably already eating complex carbs and eating healthy portions but we may some of these yeah. individuals may have to gravitate towards more of a ketogenic diet and just do some carb cycling if that's where we need to take them. And that will usually work for these individuals. Uh, that's where we also have to, because there's a delicate balance of getting enough protein, which you and I both agree is critically mm-hmm. important that most people aren't getting enough protein. Preservation of your lean mass as you age is critically important uh, for healthy longevity. And uh, and so we have to get the right amount of protein, but you know, e- even when you eat just normal protein, like regular amounts, a certain percent of that will go into gluconeogenesis. Always that. Right. Right? You can maintain your glucose through protein. And so that's where we'll use a continuous glucose monitor. It mm-hmm. makes a huge, huge difference because then we can really get precise on what exactly is triggering the glycemic variability issue. And you can really figure out someone's carb tolerance and protein tolerance and understand how to craft their diet. And if somebody is willing to get that level of data and they're so committed, they'll do whatever they have to with their diet, they're still going to eat get to eat plenty of tasty, good food. It's just going to be different foods. We can usually fix it through diet, but we'll usually have to also use some type of uh, met, uh, agent, whether it's a nutraceutical or whether it's a pharmaceutical. If they're a good responder to metformin, it's a great drug for these folks. It can make a mm-hmm. huge difference, especially if insulin resistance is the issue. So we'll go ahead and start them on metformin and, and see how they respond to that. And then, of course, berberine, bitter melon, you know, some of these other uh, options can be really quite helpful for them as well. And then we also will look more carefully at the gut biome right? yeah. because that yeah. can make a huge difference on insulin resistance. And we'll look at balance and diversity, but plus some of the specific species. And we might try to target interventions to the biome and see if that might have a measurable impact on this. And uh, then if there's a beta cells issue, it's what you taught me. last conference, after I presented a really interesting metabolic case, a woman who went from a hemoglobin A1C of 15 to 5.8 in six months, who had LADA form of diabetes, was considering bioregulators, right? Bioregulatory peptides that might provide some restorative function to the pancreas. So that's where I've got to go next in my understanding and learning, which I hope you'll be able to help me with, (laughs) because I think some of these uh, stacks of bioregulators could make an enormous difference for these individuals.
0: For sure. And it's funny because I was going to bring you back to the beta cell function only because I was concerned that some of my of the listeners might not make the connection between beta cell and pancreas. So the beta cells are the cells in the pancreas that are responsible for making insulin. And as we age, they can get tired, we can lose some, but you know, we there's attrition, there's damage to the pancreas for whatever reason. And I think you're right. I think that this is where bioregulators can provide a next layer, if you will, potentially to help to restore function, restore health, regenerate the, these different tissues and organs. And whether it's the pancreas or the blood vessels or whatever the case may be, just understanding that they're less of maybe of, a, of an acute intervention in the sense that you're not gonna just take a pancreatic the pancreas bioregulator and next week see better beta cell function, but over time, what we might see is a restoration of that, of that function. And I think you know, for someone like you to be doing this because you're so into the data, it'll be very interesting to see how over the next, and I'm gonna say the next year, because it's gonna take time for, this, for you to start to tease out the, the, the effect. But with your, with your patient base, because you're so data-driven and you're looking at this stuff and they're doing everything else right, I think it's going to be really fascinating to see how much impact you're going to see from the bioregulators in your practice.
1: Yeah, I'm really, really excited about this class, Natalie. I can't wait to dig in. <laughs> I feel like it's going to be a next level healing opportunity for so many people. And I think we'll both agree also, it's something that's going to be affordable, something that they have access to. They're not going to have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars to go to, you know, get all the next level and stem. I'm, I'm all for that. Like regenerative yeah. medicine is amazing. I love looking at what it can do. But actually, most people I work with just aren't able to access those uh, levels mm-hmm. of. It. Yet. And if we can work with natural uh, you know, compounds, which these are natural compounds uh, that are reasonably affordable, you know, these stacks over time are affordable, then a lot of people are going to be able to experience either healing or healing and then optimization in a way that hasn't been available to them previously.
0: Yeah. I love that. I, I, it's really exciting. Okay. So one of the things we talked about, we touched on very briefly on metabolic health, unless there's anything else you want to get into
1: there. Well, the last thing, and I, and it is the little tip and most people probably know this, but to, for that 70 year old or for anybody who's trying to better control, um, you know, mealtime glucose I mean postprandial glucose. We do know that if you will do some more vigorous exercise, right before you eat, mm-hmm. activate your muscles. Cause that's your biggest glucose disposal tissue in your human system, deplete a little glycogen, then you eat, and then you go take that walk 20, 30 minutes later, and you upregulate non-insulin dependent means of glucose transport into muscle cells. You can make a dramatic difference on your blood sugar.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. And that's a great takeaway. And actually, you know what the image I have of that, I, which I will forever have is when I read the four hour body by Tim Ferriss. Did you ever read that? Yeah, I did. And he talks about how he's he describes himself in the bathroom stall in a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> doing like 50 air squats before his meal. <laughs> I think that image will never leave me.
1: <laughs> I know. I know. And when some of the people I share this with, uh, they're gonna feel silly doing this stuff. And I'm like, don't, right? Like if you can get better glucose control, the compounding effect that will have for you to, yeah. you know, over time is enormous.
0: Yeah, no, it's huge. And it's and it's nothing, right? So it could. And, you know, to a lesser degree, although it's not going to deplete glycogen per se, even making the decision to walk to the restaurant and -hmm. then walk home after dinner, which is a very European thing to do, if you think about it, it doesn't so fit into our North American sensibility for most people. But think about it like we we do this sometimes. And even though it's like winter and very cold, you know, you kind of bundle up and and it's kind of hard to push yourself in the cold and the snow to do this, but you're always happier when you get home. You sleep better,
1: right? And your, dog, yes, and your digest is, is better, right? After you eat a lot of food, you take an easy walk and digest, contract your stomach muscles, which helps, you know, move things through bowel. I mean, as opposed to just sitting on the couch feeling <laughs> full. Yeah,
0: feeling like a beached whale.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, that's a great little takeaway. So let's, so moving on to body composition and optimization, because body composition is a direct offset of metabolic health. But one thing that you said earlier that I think is really important that people sometimes miss is people, I think we sometimes over rely on how we look on the outside to determine what's going on on the inside. And so, like, it's easy to look at someone who's overweight and say, oh, you're overweight. You got something going on, and you know you're not disposing of your glucose properly. You're not making enough insulin. You're eating the wrong food. You're not sleeping. But sometimes we look at these people, and they look fat fine. And this is our classic skinny fat person. I guess is the person who looks fairly trim on the outside, and yet. Is there's all this other stuff going on on the inside. And so you keep, we, we've mentioned a few times these metabolic markers, like maybe we could, we could tell people a little bit of like, what are those precise markers they should be talking to their doctors about looking at saying, you know, like, what is it that I should be looking? What am I looking for when I'm looking at my labs?
1: Yeah, um, I think it's great. Yeah. And uh, did, did I interrupt you? Did you have anything No, else no, 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 <laughs> no. I'm good. Yeah. And so and also just so you know that blood work can get expensive, but this particular blood work doesn't have to be expensive. And even if your insurance isn't going to cover it, typically you can get it for what we call client bill rates at a re- very reasonable price. So a lot of folks are shocked when I say this because they, they're thinking about glucose, but usually insulin resistance will show up in lipids before it shows up in glucose, nice. right? So yeah. Looking at your lipids and not just your standard cholesterol profile, but getting particle distributions can teach you an enormous amount about where your human system is. In fact, um, you know, a lot of the folks that I see that are already 50 and they're overweight, yes, we'll measure high insulin, probably, a you know, borderline to pre-diabetic uh, A1C. But a lot of the younger people that I see, their blood glucose, hemoglobin A1C, and insulin still look fine. And if that's all we use to assess insulin resistance, we say, oh, you don't have insulin resistance, but that's not enough. Um, but long before the it starts showing up in those particular metrics, it's in the lipids. And what we specifically look at with the standard cholesterol profile isn't so much the cholesterol, but actually, of course, the HDL and triglyceride. In those ratios. Um, I like to see a triglyceride under 75. The normal range is less than 150, but my target for my patients is less than 75. Right.
0: And then, yeah,
1: difference. And then, yeah, and then <laughs> HDL, which does have a lot of genetic influences. There are some individuals that are just going to have low HDL. But you know, the higher the HDL, the better, but there's a lot of mystery around HDL right now. We're still not quite sure what where the risk is and why it might be protective if it even is. But looking at that ratio of triglyceride to HDL and having that be under two to one, is really, really good. Um, under four to one is considered normal. I consider four to one too high. So that's the first place I look. Then if you can get either through like an NMR study or just simply a uh, uh, spot check and LDL particle count, Mm-hmm. And get and then really the small dense LDL, which is important for a couple of reasons. Arterial health is critically important, but also the percent small dense LDL, which is calculated if you get a small dense LDL and you have an LDL, you'll get your percent small dense LDL. That's usually the first place I see it. Even before triglycerides rise, the percent small dense LDL starts going up. And as your body starts making smaller, denser LDL particles, that does appear to be an indicator of many potential things, but definitely insulin resistance. So I look at small dense LDL, I look at LDL particle counts, HDL particle counts. Um, and then, uh, and if you can get a full NMR, then you're getting the size and sizes and distributions across the whole LDL spectrum of particles. And then I look at triglycerides, HDL, and those ratios. Um, The fatty acid balance can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a little bit different because it's really just a status test. And the one I use is done on cell membranes, red blood cell membranes. So it's about a 90-day assessment of the balance of fatty acids in those membranes, which is a reasonable proxy for your overall balance of fatty acids in your human system. It's not perfect, but it's reasonable. And you're going to look at your saturated fat percent. Um, that one's a little challenging because it can be endogenous Mm -hmm. or it can be exogenous. So some folks will have a very high saturated fat percent in their cell membranes, and that's not good for cell membranes. It can make them rigid and inflexible. And, you know, and so why, why do the inventory turns out they're not eating a lot of saturated fat? Well, we know then their liver is producing a lot of saturated fat in that case, they're likely insulin resistant. Yeah, that is part of it, or drinking too much alcohol, because that'll do the same thing to you. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, and then we look at their, of course, omega three levels, which are commonly de- deficient, and then we look at the linoleic acid, which is a really interesting biomarker because we're we don't have any human data as far as I know, but we have mechanistic data that higher levels of linoleic acid in a human diet influence appetite, it dysregulates satiety, it makes us hungrier, it can adjust the lipostat and the hy- hypothalamus up meaning you can actually gain more weight you can adjust your personal fat threshold up so if you are overeating you might store more as fat it also influences insulin resistance and it is a base compound for arachidonic acid which is an inflammatory eicosanoid right so there's a lot of things going on there and we do know that our modern diets have much higher levels of linoleic acid than our ancestral diets it is an essential omega-6 fatty acid it's important we should have some you don't need to eliminate it 90 percent of the people i test their levels are sky high yeah. The
0: root and the and out of whack with omega 3 right so yes. the linoleic is way too high and the omega 3 yep. is way too low
1: And that's highly problematic. And right now, all I can do is just follow my own data. I'm not going to hurt anybody by helping them reduce seed oils and maybe eat some less nuts and seeds, not eliminate them, but, you know, minimize those things and optimizing omega-3. So I feel these are safe experiments to run. What I can tell you over the last two years is those fatty acid balances have begun to optimize, saturated fat optimizes, trans fats optimize, and we balance those omega-3s. And it goes from all red to all green on the little flow chart. Yeah. It's amazing. The, the, the spillover effect on the rest of the metrics is just mind boggling. Hmm. The little, the small dense LDL, the cholesterol production markers change enormously, the uh, insulin resistance markers. It's crazy how much positive change I see as we fix those things in the uh, with the fatty acid balance. Uh, again, I can't produce all I can give are antidotes. But, you know, if the data shows that this human system is much healthier and they feel better, then we feel pretty confident we're doing something good for that person. And then finally, there's the other metrics we talked about, an insulin level a glucose level, potentially a C-peptide level if you're questioning pancreatic beta cell function and a hemoglobin A1C. Um, you know, Hemoglobin A1Cs can be off if they're anemic or they have what we call uh, urethrocytosis or high red blood cells. A lot of folks on say testosterone therapy may yeah. end up having an increase and that can skew an A1C. So you have to put that into context. And then you can look at other markers like fructosamine, but that's only about a two week average. I don't usually get those. Um but you know, you, you can see it there. Obviously, if you can do a glucose tolerance test, that's mm-hmm. the best thing to do. And you can do this at home with a, your own like freestyle Libra or a glucose monitor. You just take a 75 gram of, of, of sugar glucose and into your system and you can buy that at the grocery store and you measure it. I like to measure it 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes, 120 minutes, and see how your body is clearing that glucose. That it can give you great information. It might be one of the best tests you can do, and then finally, there's a some peripheral markers that may or may not be elevated that can indicate insulin resistance. Uric acid can commonly be elevated for people with visceral fat insulin resistance. Ferritin, which is a protein iron complex, can be elevated in cases of insulin resistance. So what you do is you get you know each of those markers, and I could write those down if you want. Put it on a little sheet yeah. that I can send to you, and then you can make that available to your listeners so they don't have to try and remember all this. That would be great. Um, Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And what you do is you have to look at the whole collection of them, yeah. right? And, yeah. and then that will really give you the picture. Um, uh, and obviously, if they have a hemoglobin A1C of 6.3 and a fasting insulin of 30, <laughs> <laughs> there's a problem. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's pretty clear. And I think also, you've also mentioned testosterone therapy, which is really interesting because I think what that brings into play is... This is, And I mean, it it goes back to the complexity of the system and making sure that you're looking at all the different factors. And hormone status is going to be a factor in this, just like the lifestyle stuff we were talking about before, like the exercise too much, too little, the sleep, not enough, the stress levels off the charts, or are they being managed properly? Um, Just making sure that we're looking at this whole thing. And I'm sure that well, I know that you also look at hormones as part of this whole thing, yeah. but in the interest of time, because there's lots of other things we want to talk about, okay. and maybe we're just gonna have to have a part two episode. This is great. and I think the the link to fatty acids status is really interesting and we and we talked about inflammation in that as well. But you know, I think that just helping people to understand this whole this whole view. And one thing I wanted to ask you about was your opinion on LDL, because there's so much conflict out there about this Mm -hmm. stuff. You've got some people poo-pooing LDL and saying, ah, you need LDL, all this garbage. It's just the pharmaceutical companies trying to sell statins. And then on the other side, you've got medical doctors who go, yeah, but no. (laughs) Turns out if you've got sky high LDL, it's not going to serve you well. And it's about those ratios again, like it's all about ratios. And I think the, ver- the VLDL, which is the small hard particles of LDL, I think everybody can pretty much agree mm-hmm. are going to be a problem, right? Yeah. Hey, folks, a quick interruption to the episode to thank our sponsor, Drink HLW, who make rejuvenation tablets, which deliver 10 parts per million in 500 milliliters of water of hydrogen to your cells. That's the highest concentration of hydrogen of any other brand. I personally choose this product because this company invests in research. As a matter of fact, to date, they've invested in over 13 human clinical trials with more coming. So what are the benefits of hydrogen? Enhanced alertness, reduction in liver fat, improved aerobic fitness, improved muscle recovery. There was even a study on metabolic health that revealed that Drink HRW tablets improved 18 of 20 metabolic markers. I personally use it first thing in the morning, and I will often use it at three o'clock in the afternoon as a little pick-me-up. So if you want to give this stuff a try, just go to drinkhrw.com forward slash superhuman, use discount code longevity to save 15% on your purchase. And now let's get back to the episode.
1: There going to be a problem. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it's a great question because it's a controversial topic and I do like to follow the different thought leaders in these areas. And there's some brilliant people breaking it down. The great thing for me is when I'm working with an individual, I just have data, I have context, right? Mm -hmm. And so I don't really have to think so much from a population health level, should we be lowering everybody's LDL? All I have to ask the question is, should should this individual have a lower LDL? And so of course, once we look at those lipid distributions again, and especially if they genetically produce lipoprotein A, LP Mm -hmm. little a, That's a whole different ballgame. If they produce a lot of Lp little a, their risk of vascular disease, blood clots, and aortic valve disease is much, much higher than the general population. And we have pretty good data that lowering LDL in those individuals is likely to forestall the development of atherosclerosis. So every listener, just pay attention to this. This is not being routinely checked right now. It's a $4 test. It's called lipoprotein A. Or lp little a somewhere between 15 to 20 percent of the population express it i do i express high levels can't help it it's genetic not lifestyle um, and if you do you need to know because the way you're going the lens that you're going to look at your arterial health through is going to change if you express it it is important to know there are subtypes of lp little a and we can't subtype them all yet some of those mm-hmm. subtypes are harmless some are obviously contributing to disease and if you have it, you need to know. So, if you have LP little a, that's going to change things. If, when I do your cholesterol balance test, you have sky high plant sterols like cystosterol, cytosterol, right. right? And uh, your genetic risk for plant sterols is high, then that could be a contributor to the development of arterial plaques. And yeah. we may need to mitigate those. It could mean that your LDL is more problematic, but well, of course, we're going to use a different treatment path- pathway in that particular case. Then we're going to look at vascular inflammatory markers, oxidized mm-hmm. phospholipid on ApoB. If that's high, there's something irritating your endothelium. And if your LDL is high at the same time that your endothelium is injured, you're going to end up with some plaque formation. It's yeah. going to happen. Well, yeah. it's a
0: healing mechanism, right? Like, and I mean, some level, right. it's the scars.
1: The scars, the scars yeah. To yeah. And so we look at all of those different labs. Are you insulin resistant? Do you have chronic inflammation, independent of vascular inflammation? And then of course, we'll go get objective data. Let's go get a coronary calcium score and see if we can see evidence of prior healed plaque formation. Let's get a carotid IMT and see if we need to see any soft plaque on the surface. For those who can afford it, we can get a CT angiogram and see soft plaque in the coronary artery system. Because if you have soft plaque, you're still forming plaque right now. Mm -hmm. So when I have all that data, then I can decide, hey, yeah, we better lower your LDL right? You, we're going we're gonna to buy you time with your arterial health if we lower the LDL. How do we choose to do that? There's a lot of ways to do it, but we may use statin medicines. They are phenomenal at lowering LDL cholesterol.
0: Yeah. And
1: we'll follow all these metrics while we do it. And I have patients who had high LDL and high small dense LDL and who had high oxidized phospholipid on APOB and LP blah, 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 significant calcium scores. We, the high production markers for cholesterol, we put them on statin therapy and guess what? It all became beautiful. Right. Yeah. yeah. So the statins also have some form of anti-inflammatory effect at the level of the endothelium. Right. So in those individuals, one therapeutic, a statin, resolve the inflammation, lower the LDL, subsequent calcium scores, two years later, no progression of plaque. Well, wonderful. I'm so glad we have statin medicines to treat these individuals.
0: Yeah. I love, I love that. I mean, you know, I think that again, because of the controversy, people get so polarized and you get so many, you know, whether it's doctors, practitioners, whatever, demonizing statins, I mean, yes, they're not the panacea. No, everybody doesn't need to be on a, on a statin. And to your point, in some cases, thank goodness we have them because mm-hmm. they are the tool that, that is necessary for this individual, given how they roll. I mean, I have a very good friend right now who's in her early 50s who just found out that she's got 85% blockage in a, in a coronary artery. Like that's scary. Right.
1: Yeah, that and it just and a, popped uh, up. Yeah, that's um, uh, that age in a female, she better ask for an LP a little A test. I wouldn't be surprised if she doesn't have that lipoprotein.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. So that's a whole other conversation. So yeah. moving along <laughs> yeah. on our on our list of things to talk about because. I mean, even if we stop now, I think there's so much gold in this conversation, but okay. there's a couple of other conversations that I think people will be really happy that we touched on. And one of these, and I think it ties in a little bit to inflammation maybe, but you know, the scourge of our last couple of years being this new virus that's made its appearance <laughs> in our world, COVID-19. And I think what we'll do for both our sanity is we're going to stay away from all the the politics and the conversations around COVID and all we're going to talk about is reality. And I know that there were two things. Number one, you've been working with peptides for quite a while. You and your whole family have recently had the, you know, the pleasure of doing the dance with the virus altogether. And so, so both before that and now since then, You've developed some, some protocols around this inflammation that just seems to stick around after people for some people at least after COVID-19. And I would guess maybe with a lot of people, yes. whether they recognize it or not. And I'd love you for you to talk about your situation because to your point, you're mostly fine, mm-hmm. but your you know, your bar for being fine is a little different than the average bear's. And so therefore, you know, you're not at 100%. So maybe we could talk a little bit about what you're seeing in your patients, what you've seen in yourself and some of the strategies that you've maybe tapped into to help people through this. And, you know, I don't think we're going to really talk about long haul COVID unless you want to, but it's up to you. I'm going to let you go with
1: this one. Yeah, thank you. I think this is such an important topic because so many people are are dealing with this, whether they're dealing with a more severe long-haul COVID or they're dealing with minor uh, residual issues associated with it. And it is lingering. The effect in the system is lingering. And, you know, you can't always measure that. Uh, I've had a lot of patients who clearly have post-inflammatory syndrome, but their cytokines look fine, but they still have inflammation. We just can't measure them. Um, But I've also seen a lot of individuals who have measurable interleukin-6, which is Mm -hmm. a very powerful inflammatory cytokine. and it should not be elevated in a normal resting state right and we know and we know also interleukin six is also the cytokine that was uh, most associated with the whole cytokine storm and the crashing right. people had so the fact that we can assess that is, is really quite good um so my family uh, unfortunately we got to dance with the delta variant before it cleared down and before omicron came in and it's a nasty virus i mean it definitely isn't a fun experience but we're all fine we're all healthy we're all fine um we were very proactive once we realize what we were dealing with, with the whole supplement protocol that, you know, people recommend. And thankfully I had available at the home thymus and alpha thymus and beta BPC and immediately started everybody on the protocol. Not my kids, they're healthy. They bounced out of it pretty quick, but my wife and I, Um, and you know, but I did, as I shared with you, I can see data points that have clearly changed since I had COVID. And that was a month ago. Now, one is my deep sleep scores have still not recovered. Uh, I measure that, I track it. They've been the same for three years and now they're 70% less than they were. And I can feel it. Mm -hmm. I don't feel quite as rested when I wake up. Uh, They're slowly getting better. I can see them slowly responding two, I can feel a little more inflammation from my workouts, my weight training. I it's taking me a little longer to recover and feel like I'm, 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 bounced back and ready for more. And then I did a full blood panel on myself recently. I just wanted nice. to check. So I did, I did everything. And it was interesting because, uh, since the first of the year, uh, other than through COVID where I, if any, I lost seven pounds, not eating, not tasting anything, but you know, if that's, if anything, that would be like a fast. So it should have been healthy. Right? <laughs> yeah. And I've been, and I've been very tuned in on my habits since the first of the year leading into COVID, I've uh, avoided all alcohol. I've been eating very clean. I've been very well programmed, you know, the usual new year stuff. So my my blood work should look really, really good right now. And uh, I had some blood work done towards the tail end of last year and even my lipids were really, really skewed. Like my my small dense LDL was up. My cholesterol production markers were up. My LDL had shot up significantly. It had looked just beautiful a few months ago. I've not been, you know, and my diet again has been, if anything, lean and that kind of stuff. Ferritin went up like 300 points. Wow. Uh, yeah. Oh, I know. It was really interesting. Hormonal changes, lots of little this and that. That you, if, if you didn't have context, you would just be kind of guessing at what's going on here. But mm-hmm. me knowing myself and not having have, comparing that data to not long ago, I know that that's an after effect of COVID because you're, you do produce more cholesterol during a time of infection or during mm-hmm. inflammatory, causes, right? So I know that those cholesterol changes were due to COVID, but they're lingering right? And then the ferritin, absolutely. It's an acute phase reactant. That's an oxidative stress marker that, that tells you that as well. And so given the fact that I can feel it a little bit overall, I feel good. I'm happy. You know, I, I if this is the worst that I have from COVID, then I'm grateful, right? Yeah. So many people have so much worse or far, far worse, but nonetheless, I like to feel good. So I had been digging into these protocols and guessing at things, guessing, really guessing with people, knowing that there's an inflammatory cytokine repo component, There's a mitochondrial component, right? We know that those two things are going on. Um, There could be a a detoxification component, but I don't know for sure. And I don't know how much biome disruption there could be from people taking a lot of potential medications and things. Some people got on steroids and other things that could have happened. But um, so I, the, the, the layers for me are one first mitochondrial support right? Mm-hmm. And of course, it's a big grouping of compounds that you can use for mitochondrial support. NAD, NMN, uh, resveratrol, EGCG, carnitine, the list is long, right? Yeah. Uh, phospholipid support, et cetera. Uh, there is a product made by a guy. I don't know if you're familiar with a, a podcast by a guy named Ari Witten. He has a podcast yeah. called, well, his product, Energenesis, which is his mitochondrial support supplement. I actually think it's just the catch me out of mitochondrial support supplements. No kidding. Yeah, he took every studied ingredient and put it in there at exactly the doses that have been shown to benefit mitochondria. So rather than trying to guess, like you and I, we've studied mitochondrial genetics. So we could look at sirtuin genetics. We can look at Nrf2 genetics. We can know know which aspect of the mitochondria needs support versus which ones are probably well-tuned. In this particular case, you're just covering every one of those. Which I think is smart. Yeah. Right. Because
0: when something goes out of whack, one thing about mitochondria, I just I just finished a course with Joel Green and he did a two. I think it was a two hour lecture on mitochondria, which was really a five hour lecture crammed into two hours, which is kind of how he rolls. (laughs) And I remember at the end of the two hour lecture and he may even have finished with this saying, you know, this is what we know about the mitochondria. I can tell you that there's at minimum double what we don't know. That's right. (laughs) Spinning off of what we do know. So I I think that to say that, oh, this is off, but this is not off. I think at this point, just take care of as much of it as you can and hope that the downstream effects just cover the rest of the bases. We don't know anything about
1: (laughs) that's exactly right. Yes. So my combination naturally has been, if they'll do it, I'll, I'll have them order his energenesis supplement. Cause I really do think he's just covered it and it's all there and you don't have to go try and find all these different components. It has D ribose. It has everything in
0: all the things. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It has everything. And then I'll have them of course, increase their omega threes while they're doing this because I have had optimal omega-3s and I take omega-3s and I eat fish and my omega-3 index was reduced by like 3%. I don't know why. I don't wow. know what effect, uh, even while I had COVID, I kept taking my omega-3s even though I wasn't eating. So I sh- there's no reason why my cell membrane concentration should have dropped so much. I can't say for sure that was COVID, but why, what, how did that happen? Um, but taking their omega-3s, obviously taking the vitamin D and optimizing that status. Oh, the other metrics. So I checked my RBC levels of zinc and copper. Mm-hmm. And I was taking zinc and I take a bunch of liver capsules on a regular basis, which should have a lot of copper. Both of them were significantly deficient.
0: Wow! So, my, so your body just am- chewed through that yes. stuff, trying yes. to deal so even
1: with taking hydro zinc, which I don't do routinely and taking what should be a healthy source of copper through that entire time. I was deficient in zinc and copper. <laughs> so there you go as well. So I ordered a specific form of zinc and copper and have really amped up that. So again, I'm sorry, I keep going off on these tangents, but that was an important one for me to remember because I, I really, because we know that's going to influence recovery and immune system balance, everything, yeah. you know, your, your T helper cell ratios are going to be highly influenced by those zinc copper amounts. So then we have the omega-3s, the vitamin D. What I'd have done is kept them on elderberry if they're using it because mm-hmm. of its immune support benefit. I feel like it's going to take a while for the immune system to recover. I've kept them on quercetin, like a yeah. really good form of quercetin. And then I, if they have it or use it already, I believe that co- different pathways for antioxidants like hydrogen enriched water. So, yeah. that they, yeah. so I've really amped up my hydrogen enriched water. You, I, I use it occasionally, not a ton, but I, I just started using two or three of those little dissolvable tablets every single day. And then I found some studies on liposomal vitamin C. Have yeah. you ever studied that? like I didn't, I theoretically to me, it didn't make sense that ascorbic acid, which is water soluble that you couldn't just load up on that. But I found a really good study where they were using it in an intensive care unit. And they compared IV liposomal and oral ascorbic acid liposomal was clearly superior and they proposed the mechanisms bypasses gut limits and moves right across cell membranes and stuff like that. So there's some studies showing ICU recovery is faster with 6,000 milligrams a day of vitamin C. So I had people order Vitamin C and use as much as they were comfortable up to.
0: Yeah. Um, well, and to your point, with the liposomal, you don't have to worry about the gut effect. And I think, absolutely. you know, I mean, in in theory, if you think about it, it should make a difference, the carrier.
1: Yes, it, it should. It
0: should make a difference that it's encapsulated in this little fat, in this phospholipid, right. and that it's gonna get different places in, 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 in it's almost like taking something sublingually instead of swallowing it and having it go through digestion.
1: Yep, exactly. And then there's the next level, right? So that's the basic, <laughs> natural, all that kind of stuff. And then get your sleep, on, you know, be the other thing for athletes, don't push it too hard. Oh this God! Is for, this is going on for weeks after you have this infection. And the people who are like, they just went and just went back into the gym and he rode up, they hurt, right? Why am I relapsing? What's going on? Yeah. Do I have the virus again? You have to pay attention. If you track it, your heart rate variability, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and when those metrics aren't back to baseline, sure, go get some exercise, but this is not the time. This is not the time to make progress in the gym. Do yeah. not go for, PRs. you're just going to delay your recovery. That is critically important for people to understand
0: or relapse. Yes. I mean, I okay. think we've all heard of people, you know, as a matter of fact, you know, who talks about this is Alex Tarnova, Tarnova, who is the Drink HRW founder mm-hmm.
1: who, that make
0: the, the open cup molecular hydrogen tablets. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I recorded a podcast with him last year. So it was either Delta or the variant before that. And he said he was home kind of going nutty. He had tested positive. He was basically asymptomatic. And mm-hmm. 10 days in, he kind of lost his marbles. He was so bored. And, yeah. you know, there was there was something about a bottle of wine and a bunch of pizzas and a crazy workout and another bottle of wine. And he said he got flattened by this thing. Yep. Like he he it like came up at him and his body was like, I got nothing. Yeah. And and he took I mean- him out.
1: I don't, you know, I, I never judge people or I try never to. I'm pretty easygoing. People make their own choices. I'm sure. a advisor. I've almost gotten angry about this one with a couple of patients you <laughs> are like, is it writing me again? And could I, what's going on? Why am I feeling like this? What happened to me? And then they tell me what they did. And I'm like, how many times do I have to tell you? You've got to, you've got to respect what this thing did to your system. Stop. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Do something else. Be productive in some other way. Anyway, AI yeah, gets me riled up. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. And then there's the next level, the peptides. Right. <laughs> so I was using PPC, of course. And thymus and beta, as we shared earlier, once I looked into some more data, I realized I was probably not dosing the thymus and beta where it needed to be for real like repair and recovery. And uh, so what I've done is place people on either oral BPC 500, you know, uh, micrograms and had them potentially increase it up to a thousand and see how they respond to that, or even switch them to systemic and start doing injections, Mm -hmm. 200 mics up to 400 micrograms a day. And then the thymism beta, which I think is actually going to be phenomenal for this. I really do. I started doing the one milligram injections a week ago when I was figuring this out. And I already feel a big difference. That's in how, interesting. Yeah. And so starting people on 750 micrograms to a milligram of thymus and beta four daily. And as you mentioned, even potentially considering the fragments, but that's a little more in depth than we can go into right now. Yeah. But, you know, those two peptides, I think can play a major role. Now there's a next level, if you can get access to it, this will help you enormously hyperbaric right? If you, if you have somebody, you know, or a facility that you can pay to go get hyperbaric treatments, it can absolutely help you get out of a, uh, you know, a COVID, a residual COVID effect much faster.
0: That's amazing. i yeah, that's such a good point as well. Actually. So you talked about the BPC-157 and thymosin and beta-4, you use thymusin alpha-1 as well, right? In your
1: and in your protocol. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I think if I'm as an alpha one and this could be uh, this could be me not thinking about it completely correctly. I think of it more from the standpoint of balancing the immune system. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so I use it a lot, obviously, in people with autoimmune diseases and chronic Lyme and things of that sort. Uh, but. Uh, you know, so for me, it's more of a prepare your system and hopefully not have as bad of a case of COVID. And honestly, even though I'm still doing residual effect, my, my COVID case was relatively mild compared to most people. And I had right. been using thymus and alpha leading up to it. And I do think it can help the immune system rebalance afterwards. So I think that it, it's not going to hurt you to continue thymus and alpha for some extra time after. But I think, but, but this is just a gestalt thing. I think that, that the anti inflammatory and reparative effects of the BPC and the thymus beta are going to be more helpful for resolving persistent symptoms.
0: Absolutely. And I actually, you know, I'm interested as you dig into the bioregulators a little more, also looking Mm -hmm. at the ones that speak to um, the vascular system, like the blood vessel bioregulator. Like we know, you know, I don't know how much we know, but there's plenty of evidence that the vascular, the blood vessels take a hit from COVID. Yes. So anything we can do to support them I don't know, again, if acutely you're going to see a massive difference, but over time, anything that's going to help those blood vessels to repair.
1: Yeah, I am so glad you said that because I've also seen a lot of people with elevated fibrinogen and many people I've had, Cases of blood clots, right? COVID-related blood clots. In fact, oh, wow. I, there was one guy that who was on everything but uh, and the kitchen sink, who 10 days later, 12 days later, he came to see me. His oxygen saturations had dropped. I sent him over immediately for a CTA of his lung. And he, his entire right main pulmonary artery was occluded with clot. He had a massive pulmonary embolism. Oh I mean, God. he was literally you know, within minutes, any further clot, uh, dissemination, he, he would die. And I had to call him and send him to the hospital that EMS. I was like, you got to go now. They got to get you on, you know, thrombolytic agents. And he didn't want to go. He was like, can't you just put me on a medicine? I'm like, no, no. <laughs> got to go to the (laughs) hospital. He was afraid if he went to the hospital, they'd put him in the ICU and put him on a vent and he'd die. I was like, no, you're not going to go on a vent. Your your, your COVID pneumonia is mostly, this is a blood clot. They just need to get you on blood thinners. So I've seen that, but a lot of folks will have microclots that can't Mm -hmm. be measured with imaging studies. So they have just teeny, teeny, teeny clots throughout their system. And fibrinogen can be an indicator of that. And so a lot of the folks I've tested and post-vaccine, have had high fibrinogen levels. And I can't say for sure that this is going to work, but one thing that could work is a a fibrinolytic agent called natokinase. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And so I am starting individuals on natokinase and I'm also, while they have COVID, until they recovered, if they don't have a reason they can't take it, like a 325 milligram aspirin.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just as a precaution. Yeah. Interesting. Great. Good point. All right. So... COVID. We've got two more topics. Let's see if we can jam them in before we, we both have to fly. The next one is really interesting as well. And I mean, clearly, guys, all of you who are screaming at me, no, 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 there's more to dig into on COVID. Yes, there will always be more to dig into, but there's this next one's really good. One of the things that when Gus reached out to me was talking about his daughter who had sustained a significant injury to her tendon her achilles tendons right
1: was that, so it was her ankle she oh. actually blew out most of the ligaments in her ankle um oh, the lateral medial complex and then also had two tendon tears One's the posterior tibial and the other is on the the medial side of the ankle okay
0: yes. so um, okay and we all know the tendons and ligaments are the worst to heal because they just have bad blood supply and she's she's got to be young like right?
1: Yeah, she's young and she runs, she sprints and jumps and, you know, and so it was a pretty bad injury. Um, We did the conservative approach, physical therapy. I did start her on thymosin beta and BPC just systemically, not locally. And six months later when they re-imaged, the ligaments had not healed. So they took surgery. And the surgeon here did an amazing, amazing job of putting all those ligaments back together because the tissue was kind of shredded. He had to use some pretty novel uh, stuff like biological tape and things like that. So it was really cool. Got the ligaments all fixed, but what was neglected, and I don't mean this as a negative about him, he did an amazing job, but the two tendons that were originally torn, like significantly torn on the MRI weren't attended to. And mm-hmm. so stop. she's recovering and then she's doing her therapy, but there's still some issues and a good friend of mine and an amazing foot and ankle specialist named Stephen Barrett. If you ever want to do a neuropathy conversation? He's your guy. He's a, uh, he's done Ted talks. He's written a textbook. And he, and he just, his, he, what he can do for restoration of nerves is amazing next level stuff. So Stephen was coming through town, to go to Raleigh to do his Ted talk. And he brought his ultrasound and he ultrasounded her tendons. And sure enough, just like the original MRI showed, big old defects in the body of the tendon, full of fluid. my daughter's crying. She's thinking, oh no, I'm going back to square one. And he injects, you know, he does a nerve block and then he injects BPC right into each of those tendons. I watched him put the needle in there and slide that medicine right into those tendons. said, stay patient, give this a little time. Two Months later, we drive to Atlanta to see him at his clinic and he re ultrasounds. Her tendons look brand new, 100%. Wow. Healed. They it was night and day. Like, if I could show people the before and after images, it's mind blowing. Like, the just the health of the tendon, the body of the tendon, how it looked it was remarkable. And this was these were tendons that one year later had not healed, right? Yeah. And then yeah. two months after the injections, they're good.
0: Wow. Um, did you continue with systemic? Yes. Uh, peptides after the, the site specific? I did. You did. Okay.
1: Yes, I did. I just, we just I asked him, should I, and he said, yeah, just go ahead, keep her on it. So I did. I had her on the BPC capsules at that point instead. And I put her on TB4 uh, injections.
0: Yeah, no, that's really, that's, that's amazing. I mean, I find that it's those cases with the peptides that really hopefully it's get, is what's getting people's attention because it's those cases you just can't budge and 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 they're the game changer right yeah. like i mean i had a i had a client who is you know she's in her 50s i want to say getting close to 60 you know unfortunately a lot of inflammation like not a good terrain to work with. And she had, she had like, you could see there was a flap ripped on her Achilles tendon, which is a really nasty injury, right? So she had a physician who was doing PRP injections and he was very clear with her, you're going to need three of these for us to even move the needle. But she'd met me and with her brother, who's a chiropractor, we started her on BPC and TB4. And at the end of the day, she'd never needed a second injection of the PRP. So I the peptides, it. the peptides kind of helped to mop up the mess, as it were. I mean, she didn't make a full, full recovery. And I think that had to do with other reasons, but definitely that flap, you could literally see it repair. It was pretty cool.
1: It is. And it changed my daughter's life, obviously, because yeah. right, like, nobody else was going to necessarily pick that up right away. What would have happened is she would have gotten a follow-up MRI because she wasn't healing the way they would have expected. They would said, oh, shoot, we got these two big tendons that are torn. Now we need to go back to surgery. And so oh. those." Together. And thankfully, um, you know, I'm connected to Dr. Barrett and he had the opportunity to do that for us. And now she's gonna be she's starting track season. And that's excited. amazing.
0: That's so exciting. That's such a great story. Okay, well, listen, why don't we use this as a natural um, ending point. I mean, clearly we can keep talking for a really long time. Um, and I'm already extending a second invitation to you to come back and do another episode, which I think will be really fun. Maybe, you know, in a few months' time when you've been playing with the bioregulators for a little longer and we be can talk perfect, about yeah. that. I think that would be really exciting. Um, so Dr. Vickery, why don't you tell people where they can find you if they're looking for you? Because I mean, I know I have a bunch of questions for you, <laughs> although you're <laughs> a very busy guy. So guys, don't be thinking you can just email. the. <laughs> yeah, but. yeah.
1: So you can, uh, my personal professional website for people who want to work with me individually or read some of the blogs I write and things like that is www.drgussvickery.com. That's drgussvickery.com. And then my practice in Asheville is called Wild Health Asheville. And my junior colleague here has a precision health program that includes genetics and labs and all of that and health coaching at a lower price point than I am. So we have a lot of folks who work with us who are just trying to get their blueprints so they yeah. can have a better understanding of their body. Um, I wrote, I did publish a book a few years ago, which was like a summary of the philosophy of health. I learned treating patients. It's really the elementary lessons. It was written for, you know, if you're already, if you're superhuman already, then this book, you, you, I bet, guarantee you're doing 99% of it. But the people in your life who you're, you can't figure out why they want, take action and try to get healthy and yeah. the book is for them. Um, it's, it's helped thousands of our patients. It's a basic blueprint for, in a very simple way, how to begin to restore health, looking at, you know, the whole mind, the mindfulness piece of it, the stress piece of it, the sleep piece that th- I made that free. You can get hard copies on Amazon, Pondra and Noble, but I did make it the ebook free and the audio files free for anybody who wants it. Oh, and that's, nice. available. yeah, it's available at, at a site called, it's not www. It's just ebook.com. DrGusVickery.com, and you can get those audio files or that book. And uh, I've gotten a lot of really good feedback that the simple style of writing and the just sort of walking people through these basics in a really easy way has made a big difference for folks.
0: I love that. Thank you. I think that's that's a great resource to give people. So, so yeah, I'm. I guess you know I might ask you one final question. What? And you may have already answered this, but you know if you could give people one or two things to really focus on, what would it be? What, what do you think are those two things? Or, I mean, you could push it to three if you had to.
1: Yeah. I mean, like the, the, if, if I'm ever asked to say, give people one thing to do, like the yeah. number one thing to do, my answer is always go outside and play, right? I mean, <laughs> right? because that's going to take care of so many things, right? Going outside, natural sunlight, circadian rhythm health, right? All the things that it does for your brain, your vitamin D. Play, meaning having fun joy, mm-hmm. positive emotions. And likely if you're playing, you're getting physical activity, right? So that's like an easy one. Like you should spend more time outside and less time inside. It's critically important for your brain and for your overall health. I believe that obviously the, the like you can't neglect any one thing, like your environment, your stress, uh, all of them are important. But the two things that I see, I'm going to put sleep aside. Cause we all know that one, you got to yeah. get good sleep, but the two things that are Mostly impacting the health of the people that I'm seeing right now is their stress axis, their HPA axis. They don't recognize how stressed they are. Mm -hmm. And so the breath, the proper sleep, the mindfulness practices, the calming everything down, the high performing athletes, the recovery process like focusing so much on that recovery because exercise is a form of stress and then to the nutritional approach, right? I mean, people, and what I think is most important, which is based on recent evidence is the timing principles of eating more Mm -hmm. so than what you eat, even though what you eat is important. And those are really simple. They came out of uh, the Salk Institute, big, big trials. We finally have it pinned down. Do not consume food or beverage calories, food or beverage calories within two to three hours of bedtime don't consume food or beverage calories within at least one hour of waking and if possible consume your food and beverage calories with either an eight or 10 hour window and have a 14 to 16 hour fasting window remarkable data for people who just followed that and didn't even change what they ate
0: yeah that is amazing thank you so much Gus. thank you thank you thank you thank you i'm so glad that we made this happen and uh, i can't wait to talk again
1: Yeah, thank you, Natalie. You've helped me so much too, so I'm very grateful for you.
0: Oh, back at you. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly, or if you'd like to leave any comments, or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly